Section 25 of Canada, South America, Central America, Mexico, and the West Indies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Albert Shu. The World's Story, Volume 11, Canada, South America, Central America, Mexico, and the West Indies. Edited by Eva March Tappan. Section 25. The Troubles of the Loyalists, about 1783, by Eva March Tappan. During the American Revolution, there were many thousand colonists who stood by England. At the close of the war, they were in a pitiable condition. Their property had been confiscated, and Congress had no power to oblige the different states to return it, even if it had been anxious so to do. Moreover, the feeling against the Loyalists, as they were called, was so bitter that the United States was certainly not an agreeable home for them, and indeed hardly a safe one, and many of them began to think of going elsewhere. The Editor But where shall we go? they questioned. Shall we go to Canada? Then, they thought, the flag that we love will float above our homes, but we shall be ruled in many matters by French law. And they hesitated. They thought of Nova Scotia, which then included the present New Brunswick. There we should be under English law, they said. And Nova Scotia has had English government for twenty-five years. We will go to Nova Scotia. Many English were already in that country, for, after the expulsion of the Acadians, seven thousand had gone from various parts of New England and settled in the Garden of the Peninsula, the fertile lands of the Annapolis and other valleys. There was also a colony on the St. John River, composed of people from Massachusetts. Several thousand loyalists now decided to go to the St. John River. The British government furnished ships to carry them, and also gave them farming implements and clothes. Food, of course, had to be provided for at least two years. Land was to be granted, but when the pilgrims landed, it had not yet been surveyed. There were not many surveyors, and to people who had heard wild stories of the arctic cold of the country, every day's delay before they could build their houses and prepare for winter seemed an age. Many of these settlers had been soldiers, and accustomed to military promptness as they were, the slowness and lack of system seemed to them unpardonable. They blamed the governor, and he retorted, I know the surveying is slow. It would go on faster if you would help, but not one of you will carry the chain unless you are sure of good pay. The government provided them with food, but they were poorly protected for the winter. A log hut was a luxury, and many lived in wigwams or camps made of bark. Some had no shelter, but canvas tents covered with boughs of evergreen and partially shielded from the biting winds by deep snow banks. When the winter was over and the days began to be warmer, other troubles came to the front. The earlier settlers had sympathized with the American colonies in their revolt against England, and neither they nor the Loyalists were happy in their new companionship. Probably the new inhabitants, as the Loyalists were called, had as much human nature as other people. It is said that they made strict investigation into the grounds on which the old inhabitants held their lands, 
and that they took special delight in returning tit for tat by seizing every farm to which the holder could not exhibit a flawless title deed. To what is now Nova Scotia, the loyalists went in large numbers. Some pressed on to Cape Breton or to Prince Edward Island. Some went directly to Halifax, and there they were sheltered in the churches until other arrangements could be made for them. The secretary of the New York Society of Loyalists had once visited the harbor of Shelburne and was enthusiastic about its value. I tell you that it is no ordinary place, he said to his friends. It has the finest harbor on the Atlantic coast, and there is no reason why we should not found a city whose commerce shall go far beyond that of New York. Several thousand persons became as enthusiastic as the secretary, and they made generous preparations for a removal. They engaged twenty vessels of all sorts, from men of war to sloops, and loaded them with not only their household belongings, but with houses themselves already to set up. Then they started out in good spirits for the city in which they were all to become millionaires. A few months later, another fleet with the same kind of load set sail for Shelburne, and soon there were 14,000 persons in the new city. The harbor was as beautiful and commodious as any of them had dreamed, and there was plenty of good water. They laid out a town with broad streets and built great roomy houses. The king sent them a present of a fire engine, and they put up in the parish church the royal coat of arms which they had brought from New York. Then they began to live in their pleasant houses, to entertain guests, and to plan what they should do when the town was ten times as large as then. It was all an air castle. It had only the harbor for a foundation, and, beautiful as the sheet of water was, there was no reason why ships should come to anchor in it. Neither harbor nor the rocky, unfruitful land that lay around it would pasture flocks and herds, or raise grain and vegetables, and indeed the aristocratic citizens seemed to have made no special effort to farm or fish or trade. They had nothing to export, and after a while they had no money with which to buy imports. The king no longer supplied them with food, and it was not long before they scattered, not only over Nova Scotia and Cape Breton, but even to the region of the Great Lakes, as if they wished to be as far away as possible from the beautiful harbor that had beguiled them. The lavish, hospitable city became a veritable deserted village. A few of the old mansions are still standing. Some were taken down and carried away to other parts of England's domain, but many decayed and fell in ruins or were used for firewood by the few settlers who remained. Throughout the years of war, there had been more or less migration of loyalists to Canada, for it was easier to reach from New York and some of the southern states than either Nova Scotia or New Brunswick. In spite of their unwillingness to be ruled by French law, many settled in districts between Vermont and New Hampshire and the St. Lawrence, longing to be under the flag of Great Britain, no matter where it might wave. One who was taken ill on the journey said to his friends, If I die on the way, don't leave me, but carry my body with you, and bury me in British soil. 
much interest began to be felt in Upper Canada. It was said that the ground was rich and fertile, and a part of the stream of emigration began to flow in that direction. There were two ways of making the journey. One was by Lake Champlain and the Richelieu River, and thence to Lachine. Their bateau had been built to carry the emigrants and their families to their new homes in Ontario, if it could be called carrying when four men had to stand in the boat and pole while the other men walked on the bank of the river and pulled the bateau along, being often obliged to wade waist-deep in the cold waters of the river or lake. Four or five families were in each boat, and twelve boats went in company. Emigrants could not always choose their time of going, and sometimes the journey had to be made in the winter, when the path through the woods must be traced by the blazes. Then, instead of boats, there was a train of long, rudely made sleighs, drawn by several horses, harnessed tandem. Another way of going to the country west of the Niagara River was by the Mohawk. When a loyalist was about to journey thither with his family, the first thing for him to do was buy a boat. And even this first step in emigrating was difficult for... The boat must not be so heavy that it would be unmanageable at the portages, and yet it must be large enough to carry a goodly load. England was generous to these friends of the government and was ready to provide farming implements, food, and clothes. But when aid is to be given to large numbers of people, some must always come last. Therefore, the loyalist who was both able and wise put upon the boat, together with his family, a supply of spades, axes, saws, and other tools, clothes, groceries, kettles, and furniture. The boat was taken up the Hudson, then up the Mohawk, over the portage to Lake Ontario, and up the lake to Niagara. When the family came to their land, a new life opened before them. They had perhaps lived in the utmost comfort in some one of the colonial cities, but now they had nothing except the earth and the forest and the few things they had brought with them. Their first occupation was to prepare some kind of shelter. They had a tent, perhaps, for the early weeks, but they must try to build a log house before the coming of cold weather. And a substantial log house was luxury itself in this new country. The front was logs, all straight and sound. The gable was logs, all tight and round. The roof was logs, so firmly bound. And the floor was logs, all down to the ground. The chimney was a wide and mighty structure built of rough stones. If the settler could not spare the time to make a chimney of stones, he made one of mud and sticks, which was not very safe, but served fairly well for a while. Few log houses were as elaborate as the one in the above rhyme, for often the roof was made of bark, and the logs, instead of being all straight and sound, had wide crevices between them, which were stuffed with moss or twigs and clay. The wilderness stretched around the little home. At night the howling of bears and wolves was heard, and the settler often tied his cow to the kitchen door, that he might be sure of owning a cow in the morning. The same dangers that beset the cow made life full of perils for the sheep. Therefore, the first comers had to depend chiefly upon flax and hemp and buckskin for their clothes. 
spinning, and weaving were carried on in the log house. The work of the mill was done either within it or near it, for after the grain was grown, it must in most cases be ground by hand. Sometimes this work was done in Indian fashion by pouring the seed into a hollowed-out stone and crushing it with another stone. Sometimes the bowl was a hollow in a hardwood stump. In this case, a heavy wooden pestle was used. In 1787, just when life would have been expected to be growing a little easier for the pioneers, there was a hard season, the hungry year it was called. The settlers around the Great Lakes were the greatest sufferers, and all the long, cold winter they were near to starvation. The government had agreed to provide food for three years only, and it was time for that supply to cease. The crops were a failure. When the settlers looked back upon that long struggle with want, they wondered how they had endured those months. England did not forsake them, but the ships bringing food were frozen into the lower St. Lawrence. The starving people ate roots and nuts and almost anything that would give them a little nourishment. One man offered to sell his farm for 50 pounds of flour, but no one had flour enough to be a purchaser. There was game in the woods, but the settlers had not the Indian skill with the bow, and powder was not plenty. When spring came, matters were a little better, for the early buds of the basswood are nutritious, and these were gathered and boiled for food. As the ice melted, those who were near rivers or ponds could catch fish, and yet there was so little food that as soon as the ears of rye, oats, and barley began to show that a kernel had been formed, people gathered them to boil or even ate them raw in the fields. So it was that Ontario was first settled. The sufferings and privations of these loyalists in the new land were no greater than those of other pioneers. Glory is due to them not because they bore these hardships, but because of the motive that brought them into such hardships. Most pioneers choose the life of the wilderness from love of adventure and change, or with the hope of bettering their fortunes. The early loyalist emigrants were forced into exile for the one reason that they were true to him whom they believed to be their rightful sovereign. End of section 25. This recording is in the public domain.